I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's most fascinating founders share their stories with us before they've made it. Their highs and lows. Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This is Unfinished Biz. You know, most of my executive team haven't even been with Briogeo for a full year yet. And, you know, this time last year looks so differently than what it looks like this year. On this episode of Unfinished Biz, Briogeo founder and CEO Nancy Twine tells us all about how she meticulously entered the prestige hair care market. Nancy was a data rock star at Goldman Sachs when she decided she needed to disrupt an entirely different CPG category, even though it was a huge departure from what she'd already established as a lucrative career. But after a personal tragedy changed her family forever, Nancy hit the reset button and realized what she was meant to do. Just because you're good at something doesn't mean that it needs to be your passion or your lifelong journey. Find out how Nancy made a dramatic shift from a lucrative career in finance on Wall Street to launch a hair care line, when it became such a personal journey for her, and why identifying the difference between natural skills and true passion is so important. Unfinished Biz starts now. You know, Wayne, I think Nancy's really a great example of an entrepreneur who sort of de-risked a little bit, you know, how she wanted to become an entrepreneur, right? She was, she was a founder, obviously at heart. She always had great conviction in the category that she was about to jump into, but she also kind of made this her side hustle for a pretty long time, um, trying to balance between sort of a a day job at Goldman, uh, and also sort of this this entirely new startup. It's like paid entrepreneurship. Bro. Yeah. I like that. I think it's a really, really good lesson for folks. Like if you're able to do it, that's it's a really nice way of actually going about it. I agree. I mean, I found I found Nancy tremendously thoughtful, sizing up the category, really thinking about it from a, a data approach and then launching the business in a very, a very informed way. Mm-hmm. And we caught up with Nancy in New York City and we learned a little bit more about the overall Briogeo story. It's funny when I tell the story because I think most people are surprised when I tell them that I actually started my career um, in Wall Street at the heart of the most recent financial crisis. What year was that? That was 2007. Oh, so good timing. Yeah, I know. You, right? you really did that. That was well played there. Totally. <laughs> and it's funny because I actually had uh, two offers, one from Goldman Sachs and one from Lehman Brothers. And um, my brother helped me to decide and said, you should go with Goldman Sachs. I think it's the better of the banks and it's (laughs) one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. Um, So, yeah, coming out of uh, University of Virginia, I was a finance major there um, and um, I started my career on the commodity sales and trading desk. So basically what I did is I helped North American corporate clients hedge their commodities exposure. So an example of that is Coca-Cola. They have exposure to corn and sugar to sweeten their beverages. Uh And those are commodities that trade on an exchange and prices can fluctuate rapidly. So we would structure derivative instruments that would help them to lock in a price today for those exposures in the future. And that would give them cost certainty over time. Um, so I did that for uh, seven years. Um, yeah, so I, I was on the same team. I ended up getting promoted to vice president at 27. It was a pretty, um, incredible experience and, um, career path, but, 
Um, one of the things that I learned about myself very early on that just because you're good at something doesn't mean that it needs to be your passion mm -hmm. or um, your lifelong journey. Right. Um, I was good at math. I was good at um, hosting client meetings, business development. But I wasn't really enthusiastic about the product. <laughs> that's, <laughs> and that's a problem. Yeah, right. it's it's a problem. Um, and so I felt this very early on. But obviously, you know, that type of job out of school, it was great paying. Yeah. I had college loans, so I stuck with it. And um, about three years through my career there in 2010, I actually lost my mom really suddenly in a car incident. Oh no! I'm and it was that. the first time that I had lost anyone close to me. And for the first time, I really had a new perspective on life. I would say in some ways I was a little naive. Like I kind of just, you know, thought you, you know, you live your full life and you get old and you retire and you have grandchildren and <laughs> that's the path for many, but it's not for everyone. Mm -hmm. So this, you know, idea of really maximizing your, your time on earth and chasing your passions and feeling good about what you do every day became um, this uh, journey and priority for me in a way that had never been before. And um, really interesting anecdote, um, my mom grew up as one of eight children um, in West Virginia. And uh, my grandmother um, didn't have a lot of money or resources, yeah. and she was always kind of cutting corners and being thrifty with ways to provide for the family. And one of the things that she would do is um, she would use essential oils and extracts and butters and really anything she could get her hands on <laughs> to create these really like basic products for the family. And when I was growing up, my mom was also a chemist, so she kind of took a natural interest in mixing things and science, and uh, we would make a lot of our own beauty products together. And um, before my mom passed, she was actually in the process of starting her own skincare line. And when I was going through kind of the aftermath and going through all of her stuff, I got really inspired. And at the same time, had started to see a shift that was happening in beauty, and it really started in mass um, with places like Whole Foods starting to carve out shelf space for natural personal yep. care. Um, and I took note of this and thought, oh wow, this is so interesting. I feel like if this had happened you know, a couple decades before, like we could have had a booming business right. um, in Whole Foods. Um, and so I started getting the idea of pursuing this path of creating my own natural beauty product line, but I wanted to be really smart about it because I knew if I was gonna go down this path, it meant giving up this really great paying <laughs> yeah, job that right. I was successful at. So I was really um, thoughtful and particular about what I was gonna do. So I, I decided to create a business plan. And in creating the business plan, I sought out to figure out where was the white space in this budding mm -hmm. natural market? Because right. I was seeing a lot of stuff um, on Whole food shelf and that almost felt like it was starting to get saturated. Um, but took note that um, the same phenomenon hadn't really started happening in prestige yet. There were a couple of brands sprinkled yep. here and there, mm -hmm. um, but, but, but not in a way that felt very heavy. And not only that, um, I felt like within the hair care category specifically, there was a big lack for clean and then also products that really focused on catering to a diverse array of, of, of hair needs. Mm -hmm. So in terms of timeline, so you mm -hmm. mentioned that your your mother passed in, in 2010. Mm -hmm. So you would have been about three years in at Goldman. Yeah. So was the business plan occurring in basically year four of seven uh, at Goldman then? 
Yeah, so it would have been like 2011 okay. when mm -hmm. I started yeah. on the, the the business planning. But I started getting an idea for it actually in yeah. 2010. Um, and so I wanted to build the business plan the right way. So I wanted to actually get like, you know, stats on the market yeah. <laughs> and I was, you know, finding stuff on Google and I was like, man, these research reports are so expensive. And someone says, oh, you should just go to the small business library on Madison and 34th. I bet you can get access to a lot of this stuff for free. And it was true. Um, I still recommend this resource. A lot of people don't even know about it. But all you need is a library card and you can get access to a database of tons of research huh. for free. Um, so I used that to build out my business plan. And what was really cool was that research publications were actually starting to write about the natural personal care market. Mm -hmm. yep. And kind of in line with uh, my hypotheses, a lot of the brands that were mentioned in these reports were mass brands. Um, and there was a lot of talk about, you know, whether or not this was a trend or would it ultimately start to infiltrate prestige. And that's kind of where I placed, you know, my bets. Um, and then um, even further on a category that I just felt was so underserved and also kind of ignored in the consumer retail space because yep. primarily, you know, so many of the uh, prestige hair brands were really focused in salon. Mm -hmm. But how did you decide on hair based on that research? Yeah. So, well, there were a couple of things, you know, most of the brands that were represented in these reports fell within, you know, skin and body. There were very few players um, in um, hair. Probably the biggest one that was always talked about was Aveda. Mm -hmm. um, and also, too, I had a particular affinity towards hair. Um, I have mixed background and I have naturally curly hair. And my hair is something that I've always kind of struggled with throughout my life, myself and my friends. And I felt like I had just much more of a personal tie to this category. And I feel like it really kind of shaped so much of my growing up was, you know, mixing things up and yeah. trying to find the right <laughs> concoction that would mm -hmm. like tame my curl. So um, there was also that personal connection as well. That makes sense. And then you, so was it a side hustle for a while during, during your time at Goldman? Cause again, I'm trying to, uh, I keep coming back to the timeline. You said you were at Goldman for seven years. Yeah. So, and you started your business planning around year three slash four, did you launch the company while, while at Goldman? How did, how does that all yeah. come together? So I ended up leaving Goldman in 2014. I launched the company in 2013. So there was about six months of overlap. So and, the, and years of research and heading in. Yes, exactly. So I spent a couple of years just really business planning, doing a lot of research. I found a contract manufacturer that helped me to develop my first four products. And I was very analytical with that. I had a, <laughs> I created a focus group with 100 people that tested the products. Nice. We got feedback. We tweaked them. We did several iterations. Um, I had to find a packaging designer. So also for me, it became like this therapeutic project because when I came home from work, I was able to really pour myself into something that I was so excited about. So it almost became like this like therapy for me as well um, during that transition period after um, my mom passed. And um, before I knew it, in 2012, we had finalized the formulas and um, the packaging was pretty much set and I placed nice. my first order. And at the same time, I was thinking like, okay, in a couple of months, I'm gonna have real product um, how am I going to actually start selling this? <laughs> and um, just through talking with friends who would introduce me to friends of friends that maybe had their own deodorant company or you know some other uh, consumer product company, someone mentioned to me Cosmoprof. 
um, which is North America's largest beauty trade show that takes place in Las Vegas every summer. And I went to the website, and I think it was one of the first years that they had created this Discover Beauty section, which was a section specific to budding indie brands. Um, and I had very little in terms of marketing material. I think I like put together a brand book in PowerPoint. Did, did you have and a name at that point yet? I did have a did. name. Okay. Yeah, I did have a name. Um, was it Briogeo then? Yeah, it was. It was. It was Briogeo, and that even even that was a journey coming up with the name. <laughs> yeah, how did you name the company? Well, it was tough because I had so many ideas, and everything um, that I would put through the the server had already had you know trademark against mm-hmm. it. So um, at one point, I said, you know what, I just need someone to help me do this. So. Um, a friend of mine had gone to business school with a guy that had a side hustle, which was helping companies, vodka and car companies, name really? uh, their products. Uh-huh. He was just like a wordsmith. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, oh, beauty, that could be cool. So he really kind of digested uh, the DNA of the brand. Um, and if you've seen the brand, obviously, you yeah. know, the, co- the packaging is really colorful. It's very yeah. vibrant and obviously clean formulas. So, uh, the word brio is an Italian word that means vibrant, colorful, full of life. So that really speaks to our, our brand DNA. And then geo is a Latin word that means of earth or of nature. And that speaks to um, our clean ingredient methodology. Mm-hmm. So the word briogeo was a unique name that no one had trademarked. Yeah. <laughs> Even if you Googled it, nothing came That's up. Right. Yep. So we own the Google on it too, uh-huh. <laughs> which is just as important as owning the trademark. Absolutely. Um, and so that that was the, that's how the name came about. Nice. So then you were... So you had the name, you had some initial product, and then you were heading to Cosmoprof. And then I was heading to Cosmoprof, so I had to apply to be in the section, and that's why I kind of put together this brand book and PowerPoint, and I'm actually still surprised till this day that I got invited in (laughs) because the marketing materials were so loose and so bare bones. But anyway, I got invited in, and um, I had my little booth set up, and luckily I was smart too, and I knew. I said, you know, if I'm gonna go to this trade show, I should probably bring samples with me. (laughs) So I had some samples packets created mm-hmm. and um, you know that that was probably one of the, the biggest uh, game-changing moments for the brand because I had no idea that buyers from like you know Sephora and Nordstrom and Urban Outfitters and all these other people were gonna be there and basically what happened was I got a lot of attention because I was the only hair care brand in the section Um, The packaging was also very different. No one had seen anything like it before. So people were really eager to try the product and luckily I had samples. So every buyer that I gave samples to that day came back and expressed interest in carrying the brand. Did you know the buyers or did you at that point, like, I I don't know if you like kind of targeted somebody? Exactly. Yeah, well, I I knew that Sephora was supposed to be there. And that was really the biggie of who I wanted to meet. And it's Uh funny, actually, how that happened, because Sephora came by the booth on the last day, and I actually didn't even know it was Sephora. It was a group (laughs) of four people. And they had their badges turned. I know. It's it's so suspicious. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's so funny. Like, it's almost like if... That, that, it's almost like you, you should just follow around these trade shows and look for all the people with, with the turn yeah. ones. That means, yeah. you're, that means you're like the real, <laughs> right. you're the real deal That's of right. being turned around. Completely. And so I, you know, I was just so passionate the whole show. So it didn't matter who came by the booth. I gave them that, you know, same energetic filled, you know, overview of the brand. And then, so they came, they got the story and then they walked away and the girl next to my booth came up and says, 
oh my gosh, you're so lucky that Sephora came by your booth. I've been waiting like all weekend. I was like, wait, what? Like, that oh. was Sephora? <laughs> and then. That's awesome. And then I was like, oh my gosh, like I lost my moment. Like I didn't even get a business card. Yeah. And long story short, um, one of the women in the group um, who was, you know, the head of the division at the time, Margarita, I remember she had a really unique name. So when I got back to New York, um, I basically did some Googling and, yeah. and figured out her email address and all of that stuff and was able to set up a meeting post show with them. Well, that's great. That's very cool. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I mean, it's that moment. I think it's almost like it's, it makes it even more interesting the fact that you didn't know it was Sephora and the impact that you must have made, you know, by being in that that area of the show and all. Obviously, whatever you said during that short time period together. So tell us about the meeting from there. Did, was did she remember you when you when you uh, emailed her? Yeah, and were you flying solo at this point still, or you know, how, where where were you in that that part of the journey too? Yeah, so I was I was still at Goldman, so I had actually okay. taken PTO to go to the show. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> so I needed to be back Monday morning. But yeah, you know, I, I sent Margarita a note and I'm sure, you know, someone as senior as her probably gets so many inquiries. Yeah. So it took a couple of follow-ups before she actually responded and she remembered the brand and um, said some nice words, but didn't, you know, open herself up to a meeting. Mm -hmm. So I responded again and told her, oh, I'm going to be in San Francisco next month, which mm -hmm. I really had no plans to be in until yeah. they wanted to meet. And she put me in touch That's with okay. one we of do the their. Yeah, I'm going to be in like five different cities next week. Yeah. Just, it's all good. I think Robin did that with you. In fact, it's possible. Probably. Yeah. Hey, I think he made up. Yeah. Think he made up many New York trips. Exactly. <laughs> Am I calling you out right now? No, it's it's a good thing it's New York. It's harder to do when it's kind of like, oh yeah, I'm going to be in Columbus. To... Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly, Missouri. Yeah. Um, and so. She set up a meeting with myself and her um, junior buyer, and we met at a coffee shop, Pete's Coffee. Yeah. Yep. Um, and um, I shared with her just in more depth the story and the vision of the brand. Um, and she was really excited about it and really loved the diversity angle because at the time, there was no hair care brand at Sephora that offered a diverse um, offering of products for different hair texture types and needs. Um, but at the same time, I was still a bit early. I think, you know, Sephora was starting to talk about expanding hair care, but they weren't there yet. So the conversation ended up going something like, oh, love the brand, love the vision. What you're doing is so cool. Um, I don't think the timing is right, but we'll be in touch. Mm -hmm. So um, I actually remember going back to work um, that next day or whenever it was. And I started actually second guessing myself a little bit. Like, did I pick the right category? Mm -hmm. Um, because that was the sentiment at the time. I do yeah. think I was, a, I was a little early for uh, what we were setting out to do and, and prestige hair. Um, so, you know, I came back to work feeling a little pessimistic that I'd probably have to stay at Goldman a bit longer than I had <laughs> hoped. Um, but what I did in the interim is, you know, all the contacts that I had built, you know, every little bit of press we would get, I would send along a monthly recap. I was collecting all of our reviews and I would put together like positive review decks that they could see that people actually liked the products yeah. and there was demand for it. Where was it being it was sold. sold at that time? Oh, so nice, we, Robin. good timing. <laughs> yeah, so we were uh, being sold um, at Urban Outfitters, um, a site called naturallycurly.com, um, our website. And we had started doing some early yeah. sampling with some sampling boxes. Mm -hmm. So we were getting reviews through that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, but very light distribution and um, 
you know, about six months of doing that, sending those regular updates, I finally got a response from that junior buyer at Sephora that really changed my life. And I still keep in touch with her till this day. And I tell her the story that she's the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm here doing what I'm <laughs> doing today because she gave me the opportunity. Um, but the email was something like, you know, I'm so glad that you reached out. The stars must have been aligned. We just got out of a town hall and we're really um, going to start prioritizing hair care um, as our next focus category because we believe that there's um, a lot of strength and a lot of potential. And um, what we really like about your brand is that you offer something different from two perspectives, a brand that is clean. Um, we believe in that trend and how it's going to develop, but then also uh, the diverse aspect um, of what we were doing. Um, so that was a monumental moment because I basically had a written commitment that they yeah. were going to take the brand. Um, so I actually ended up resigning at Goldman Sachs two weeks later after getting you Did know you Jerry Maguire style. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and so yeah, I mean it was um, it was. Uh, you know, but it was a big faith moment because just having Sephora say, we're going to take on your yeah. brand doesn't necessarily mean like a life changing moment. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best idea to quit your job. <laughs> um, but, you know, I had been at it at Goldman for seven years. I had accomplished so much and I had saved up some money. And I said, you know, worst case scenario, I'll, you know, figure it out. Um, and so really taking that leap of faith um, has really been one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. And. You know, sometimes I get chills too, just like at the foresight that I had, you know, back in 2010 about uh, what clean was going to ultimately become in prestige and then ultimately what uh, hair was going to become in, yeah. you know, consumer prestige as well. Um, you know, the trend of the skinification of hair, which is something I think we were really at the forefront of um, and building out a scalp category. Um, people really starting to think about their hair and scalp the same way that they mm -hmm. think about a really good, you know, skincare routine. Um, and kind of the idea too, similar in, in makeup. Well, I may not have to wear all the makeup if my skin is really healthy and glowy. Same thing with hair care. I may not need to use all these holding sprays and texture sprays right. if my hair feels healthy and shiny. Mm -hmm. um, so in a lot of ways, you know, the vision of the brand that was set back, you know, years ago, um, has really been congruent with where the trends and, and market have um, evolved. And I just feel so grateful that we've really been at the forefront of that. And um, we've been just continuing to innovate in really cool ways, like, you know, getting inspiration from green juices and smoothies and bringing <laughs> it into hair care mm -hmm. products. Um, things that I think a lot of brands, you know, wouldn't think of or, you know, just making that connection um, to inner health and hair health. Um, so it's been a really exciting journey. Did the business take off from the start once you got into Sephora? Did they give you all stores or a little bit of a test? Yeah, well, it was it was a test. We started online for the first six months mm -hmm. and then we went into our first 25 stores and we had to hit targets and prove ourselves. And then we got another 25 and now we're in all doors, um, Sephora North America, which is a bit over 400. Um, so it was definitely an evolution. and. Um, there were definitely some tough times because I do think that we were ahead of the game. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the movement really had to catch up with us. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it was our allegiance to um, our focus on sampling that was really big for us because the products are incredible. And when people actually try them, 
um, it was a big catalyst for like, you know, the impact that you get with like word of mouth marketing. It's like you try it, you love it, you're able to buy it. Um, where do you, where'd you sample? We sampled uh, with our retailers, but then we also sampled with some third party uh, boxes like Birchbox and yeah. Ipsy. Um, so that was really, really impactful. I mean, we got our products in the hands of millions and millions of people um, over the past several um, years by doing that consistently and really focusing um, on our hero SKUs. So I think that that was a big part um, of our early success. Um, and then also just really taking a bet on scalp care mm -hmm. at the right time. And I think that that moment is where we also built credibil yep. credibility um, in a broader way. We started winning our first you know, awards with Allure and um, we were getting press at a more elevated level. Um, so I think that that collection too was just a game changer in how the brand was being perceived in the, the greater industry. So at what point in time did you actually go from you were doing everything to at least starting to bring a couple people on? Um, probably less than a year ago. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, most of my executive team haven't even been with Briogeo for a full year mm -hmm. yet. And, you know, this time last year looks so differently than what it looks like this year. This time last year, it was basically me, the CEO and a team of executors that were all reporting into me. Um, and you can only do that for so long. Like there comes, you know, a number of people that that can work, that model can work well with. Um, but then you get to a point, too, where the, the business becomes a lot more complex. You're mm -hmm. getting so many new opportunities. And then also, too, as you grow in size, there's the expectation that you have a team built out so that if a retailer gives you a big opportunity, they have the optimism that you can actually deliver. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so it's been important from, from that respect as well. Right after the break, we'll be back with our featured guest, Briogeo founder and CEO, Nancy Twine. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. Subscribe for free on the podcast app of your choice and visit us at unfinishedbiz.com. Have you seen our Unfinished Biz LinkedIn page? I love LinkedIn. We'll keep you up to date on everything that's new. And if you love the show, leave us an iTunes review and let us know what's working. But now, let's get back to our episode with Briogeo founder and CEO, Nancy Twine. Nancy, has there been a bet the company moment in, uh, in Briogeo's history? You know, there haven't been many of them, but I think the most significant one happened very early on in my journey. I remember um, it was when I was, uh, I was actually still at Goldman about to make the transition to uh, Briogeo full time. And I got this opportunity to sample um, our Don't Despair Repair hair mask with Ipsy. Mm -hmm. And there were about 250 samples that needed to be produced. So this was really, you know, um, pre me having any sort of, you know, major investment. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the way it worked is that I would have to fund the samples and I would get paid, you know, X number of days after we had been delivered. Um, so that was a big bet that I had to take because I literally dipped into my personal savings to dish out, um, you know, a few hundred thousands of dollars um, to pay for all these samples. And mm -hmm. it was my first time I had ever worked with any sort of beauty vendor before. And then just the promise that they were going to actually, you know, pay yeah. me back. Yeah, that's right. Um, so that was a big bet moment. But I knew that the opportunity was so big and starting out, you know, to, to have the opportunity to put your you know, samples in the hands of 250,000 people. It was just an opportunity that I couldn't say no to. And I really believed in the product. And I knew that if I did this, it would convert and help to start putting the brand on the, on the map. 
So it was just one of those um, moments when I had to just kind of place the bets and hope for yeah. the best. And can, you, Go ahead. can you talk so a little bit? Now you have a question. Yeah, now <laughs> I have a question. Can you talk a little bit about um, sort of how you funded the business in the early days and sort of was it easy to raise when you chose to raise and, and all of that? Yeah, so um, most of the business early on was funded just through my personal savings. And um, in 2012, actually, I realized that I was going to need a bit of a cushion. Um, and um, I started learning about angel investors. Mm -hmm. And um, given where I was in my path, that was kind of the only money that made sense. Like VCs and PEs weren't going to yeah. invest in a business of my size with mm -hmm. no sales. So um, I grew up in Long Island mm -hmm. and um, I discovered the Long Island Angel Network. So um, there was actually a club where these investors would meet once a month and have uh, you know companies pitch them and decide if they wanted to invest. Um, so this was a really interesting story because I mem remember it very vividly. Um, but I had left work early that day and I rented a zip car and I drove out to Long Island and um, I had a presentation. I didn't have product yet at the time. So I had just a visual board of what the product was going to look like. And I show up and there is a huge auditorium um, and there are only men there, men in suits. <laughs> so... <laughs> I got really, really nervous and I said, okay, well this is gonna be a tough audience to try to sell a beauty brand to. And then I later recognized also too that I was the only, not only the fee, only female um, presenter, but all the other presenters were um, showing like tech ideas and concepts. So I was really out of place. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was so nervous. I said, should I even go through with this? I don't want to embarrass myself. But I said, I drove all the way out here. Let me at least get some practice yeah. with my pitch. Mm -hmm. So. Um, I did my presentation and it went really, really well. Um, and then afterwards there was a breakout room where I had a little table and I had my um, concept board there. And it was such an embarrassing hour and that I stood there for an hour and no one came to my table. I felt invisible, I felt you know ignored. Um, and I was, at the end of it, I was packing up my board, getting ready to go. And one guy, um, his name is Phil, came by and said, you did such a fantastic job. I thought you were the best presenter. I know nothing about beauty, but when you get a little further along, give me a call. And he gave me his business card. And um, it was actually after Cosmoprof, when I had brought in my first account, which was Urban Outfitters, um, I shot him a note and I, I let him know about it. And he invited me to a dinner with some of his other angel investments and um, committed to making an investment oh, wow. in the brand. Such, so that was my great first story. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. That was my first little chunk um, of money, which helped. Um, but I went through it pretty quickly because there were a lot of expenses early on yeah. with R&D and packaging in my first production run. So for the next several years, um, I actually financed the business really just through making like micro loans from my personal account into the business back and forth. I'd pay myself back. I'd loan out again. Um, and then once we got to a point of being profitable, I was able to get a bank loan, um, which was still very small. So I was still doing a mix of both. But then um, it got to a point where the profitability was really able to sustain the cash flow needs of the business. So I didn't need to dip into my personal savings the same way that I had in the past. So prior to, to our partnership together, was Phil the loan investor <laughs> in the company other than your own micro loans? To that the was it. 
that was it. And we probably met, you know, twice a year. We talked twice a year and I, you know, put together a little presentation and he was just really so supportive too and just let me do my thing. He was there if I needed him, but he was, you know, very hands off and believed that, you know, I had a vision and, um, but it was, you know, it was, it was really um, helpful um, in the early stages too to know that it wasn't just all of my savings that I kind of had de-risked a little bit. Um, but I did go through that cash pretty quickly. <laughs> but as you built out your business model, did you, was capital efficiency and gross margin, is this something that you actively managed to, to try to get quickly to profitability so you didn't need to rely on equity capital? Yeah, absolutely. And I knew too that if I wanted to maintain or to get a bank loan and then maintain it, there were certain profitability targets that I needed to hit. So I was really managing and maintaining the business with that objective in mind um, and, you know, had planned to scale that line of credit to um, support the needs of the business without needing to, to dip into my savings. Um, and but the thing is, though, too, you know, especially as I started building out an executive team and um, the business became more complex, certainly I could have probably continued with that model for a bit, but it also becomes a bit risky. And also, too, just, you know, with unknown certainties in the future about how banks may look to loan, you know, to businesses, I wanted to make sure that we had a, a, a backstop beyond just that. Makes sense. And it seems like it's been quite the successful journey to date. Is there a particular high point that resonates? Yeah, there's so many high points. Um, obviously, you know, going global and, you know, expanding into all door counts with Sephora has been a big one. Mm -hmm. um, but I even know just from like an award standpoint, um, to me, it was always a dream to get an Allure Best of Beauty seal. <laughs> that was like, mm -hmm. you know, you've made it. Um, and we got one, our first one a couple of years ago, and we've been getting them every single year since. But it was such a rite of passage and I feel like really put that stamp of approval on, you know, what we were doing was really being respected in the industry and also by the clients. So that was a big moment. And there's always challenges, of course, of being an entrepreneur. Is there a low point that sticks out? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the biggest low point was as early as this time last year, you know, being really the sole executive of the company, um, and having so many people report into me and being stretched so thin, there were people that really needed extra management and guidance and development. And I just I couldn't give that to them while also being able to, um, you know, take care of the business in other ways. So it just got to a point where I was just spread so, so thin and um, we had a lot of attrition because of it. And it was it was a scary moment from a people perspective. But um, and that's kind of how, you know, when the right time is to make a move. Like I knew, I said, you know, I, I've got to start building an executive mm -hmm. team. I can't do this by myself. Um, so sometimes it's those low points that kind of trigger the pivot that you need to really take things to the next level. And it's grown so fast where your needs, I'm sure have evolved going from stage to stage pretty, pretty yeah. quickly on who you need in the, in the boat with you. Sorry, Rob. And at this point, what's keeping you up at night? Man, what keeps me up at night? You know, I actually sleep pretty well at night. <laughs> um, I think just still, you know, I think as the company grows, that's one thing. As the company grows, you're going to always have the need for new talent. Um, so it's really thinking about what the future of our talent pool looks like and um, the resources of the business now and in the future. 
Um, So that's something that I spend a lot more time thinking about. Wayne, this is one of those businesses that you just love. Hair care businesses? Because I have nice, long, flowing hair. Beautiful locks. I mean, if you know (laughs) Wayne, obviously. No, I think more businesses that actually, they make money. It's true. And then you're talking to the guy that has a t-shirt that says, I love EBITDA. He really does. And for a small price of 15 bucks, he will send you one. Absolutely. (laughs) And my margin on it is tremendous. Exactly. Exactly. But I mean, Nancy was just, she was so smart about being really precious with her own capital. And the truth is it was her own capital. She was putting her own money into this thing. Absolutely. We love bootstrap businesses. Um, We love it when entrepreneurs like Nancy choose VMG because they want our partnership and support Mm -hmm. and they don't actually need our capital. And that's really refreshing. And she had a ton of option value. I mean, she worked really hard to get there because obviously the early days, it's always, always so hard. But by the end of it, because she had actually put her own money in and because she'd actually built a business model that threw off cash, she was able to really think about who was the best partner, what was the best path for her to actually take. Honestly, it's really refreshing to hear stories like this. And she's really a, a, a holistically interesting human being mm-hmm. in that she's not just left brain, she's also right brain. And I think, you know, you'll be surprised by her artistic side as well. I have some awesome friends that I really love to spend time with when I have opportunities to do so, whether it's taking long weekend trips or um, I love the food scene in New York and other places as well. So that's always a big part of my weeks. You know, I, I go out to dinner a few times a week and um, spend time with friends. Um, wellness is something that's also really, really important to me. Um, so being able to do trips and visit places that allow me to connect with nature, um, or to just really recharge and reset is, um, a big part of that too. I love bike riding. Um, I actually used to be really into art and particularly watercolors and charcoal drawings. I haven't been able to do as much of it lately because I've been so busy, but it's something that I love to reconnect with when I have the time. Did you grow up doing both of those things, watercolor and charcoal? Yes. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So even though I was a finance major at yeah. UVA, I took art classes every single semester. Oh, that's yeah, very cool. something I love. And where do you go bike riding here? Uh, West Side Highway. Oh, okay. Yeah. With a helmet because nice. it can get <laughs> dangerous on those bike paths. There's some pretty aggressive bikers and pedestrians. Time for our signature game, Nancy. You ready? 60, I think so. 60 seconds. Try to get through as many as you can. Don't get hung up on any one single question. So much pressure. Speed is your friend. Ready? <laughs> sure. Okay. All right, let's go. Number one, what is your guilty pleasure? Cookies and cream ice cream. Me too. Top of your bucket list? Um, to skydive. Uh, would you rather be able to speak to any animal or speak in any foreign language? Speak in any foreign language. Favorite book? Um, The Great Gatsby. If you could meet any historical figure, who would it be? Abraham Lincoln. Hmm. Morning person or night owl? Uh, night owl. If you could have any one superpower, what would it be? Um, being able to get to any destination in less than a minute. <laughs> Read a book or watch a movie? Read a book. High five or fist bump? Fist bump. If you could eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Mmm, that's a good one. Um, Kale. Favorite consumer brand that's not your own? I love Drunk Elephant. Oh, oh. as a kid, VMG family. As a kid, <laughs> what did you want to be when you grew up? Um, I probably wanted to 
Oh, be a musician. I wanted to be a musician. Celebrity crush? That's so hard. Oh, um, Bradley Cooper. <laughs> Favorite way to unwind after a long day? Uh, massage. Pet peeves? Um, people that have big dreams but don't want to hustle for them. First job? Um, working at Forever 21 as a sales associate. <laughs> last concert you went to? Oh, last concert I went to. Oh, shoot. Um, Oh my gosh, this one's so hard. I, I really can't even remember. Podcasts or music? Music. Favorite vacation you've been on? Oh, San Tropez. <laughs> <laughs> Last question. What advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? Yeah, so the big one is, you know, just staying in the game is the big part of the equation. You know, you're going to face so many challenges and struggles, but you really have to stick to your vision. I think a big portion of the people people that don't succeed as entrepreneurs are ones that give up too quickly. You obviously have to have a good, viable business idea, but if you believe in that, um, really sticking it out through the tough times can make all the difference. That's great advice. Nancy, thanks for joining us on Unfinished Biz. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to Unfinished Biz. I'm Wayne Wu. And I'm Robin. We'll be back on the next episode with Bombas co-founder and CEO, Dave Heath, who disrupted a market you wouldn't necessarily think needed to be disrupted, the sock industry. Find out how the self-proclaimed Cadillac of socks is helping humans while also paying tribute to bumblebees. We're better than fiction, folks. These are the opinions of Robin and Wayne and our guest entrepreneur and are not necessarily the opinions and thoughts of VMG partners. Entrepreneurs interviewed on this podcast may not be associated with VMG businesses and discussions of their companies should not be viewed as an endorsement by VMG.